Are we are we going to start? I think oh, we're recording. How do we even start? I think we're gently <laughs> easing ourselves in. Oh, gotcha. Okay. You're listening to Electioneering with Mark Lucas and me, Dominic Mingella. Between us, we've had a hand in campaign films and strategy for centre-left parties in dozens of elections in the UK and beyond. The campaigning for the next general election in the UK has effectively already begun, and between now and polling day, whenever that should be, we bring our presentational perspective to what the parties are doing and what we think they should be doing to win hearts, minds and votes. So, what were we... T- Actually, there was something I wanted to play to you. We were talking about our voices. And, I, yeah. you know, I don't particularly love the sound of my voice. That's probably why it's taken me this long to actually do some things. I don't think my voice carries the authority that my amazing wisdom deserves. Yeah, you feel that your voice is Keir Starmer-ish, is what you said. I do. And what does that mean? Well, Keir Starmer's voice is, um, it's like Margaret Thatcher's before she did the work on it. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> way too high. So this is what I've got to tell you. So um, when we were editing the Labour Party PPB, election Peace broadcast. Party political broadcast when it's not an election and party election yes. broadcast when it's um, an election. Uh, you know, you're going round and round over the same old speeches again and again and again, and in the cutting room, and the voice, the, the repeated lines of Keir driving me mad. And actually, I thought part of the problem is he's got what I've got, which is this high voice that doesn't carry authority. And what would happen if he did what Margaret Thatcher did, which is to lower it a wee bit? Would he have? Would he sound more commanding? So, of course, these days in the cutting room, you can tweak the pitch of a voice. Yeah. So I got. Georgie to lower the pitch. So we drop the voice, which you would think is nothing. So da 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 is eight 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 tones. If you drop oh, just okay. if you drop just half a semitone, you're not going to hear it, are you? But wait till you hear what we recorded. So we did a semitone, half a semitone, and I think a whole tone, and put them back to back, and the difference is. Absolutely amazing. Is it? I'm excited yeah. now. Yeah, so I'm going to see if I can find that for you. And, play, and I'm waiting for the opportunity to, um, the moment to be right, to put it to Keir or his team and say, <laughs> I've got the Do you want to hear this difference? Yeah. To you being whatever um, people say he is. <laughs> well, there's just no doubting that it gives authority to what you're saying. I mean, we know that slowing down automatically gives authority, don't we? But the tone, yeah, that's a. That's a good one. Well, let me see if I can find it, and if I can find it where I can play it. While that's happening, who's got the best political voice then, in your view? Like, who's the, the you know, who's the, the, the gold standard of voices? Because it used to matter more, right? It doesn't matter. Well, it still matters a lot, I suppose. I think it matters a lot. <coughs> well, it ain't Rishi Sunak. Yeah, he sounds like the in between us. He yeah. sounds like and sounds and looks like the in between us, which is um, <coughs> not not a winning combo. It's interesting, I'm really struggling to think of someone who's got a voice that you would... I mean, I always liked the tone to. of Gordon's voice, but then you couldn't always totally make out what he was he was saying, could you? But I like he had good depth, didn't he? If you're looking for a bit of depth. Amazing depth and um, authority in his voice, but not necessarily warmth. Mm, yeah. You know, I think it contributes to that sort of Presbyterian, um, relentlessly serious guy, which is what he what he is. And... I think, I mean, you know this, that when he when he quit um, being Prime Minister, um, he sort of disappeared for six months and I went to a meeting with him and people were saying, well, you know, what have you been doing? Where, where have you been? And he said, 
I've been to charm school and he's patting everyone on the back and really <laughs> was really charming and uh, we all laughed and he said no no I really have been to charm school and I think it probably was a shame he didn't go to charm school 10 years previously yeah blimey I mean what, charm of all the words you'd use to describe him charm wouldn't be up there would it although if you see him lately he is definitely much easier he just to feels love more relaxed doesn't he yeah. a bit warmer uh, you always felt there was like a really great Gordon inside the the kind of slightly not awkward necessarily but kind of slightly forced Gordon that there was another Gordon that you wanted to love in there mm. um, but you know I don't know maybe it was the job I mean it's a hell of a job to do obviously PM maybe he just took it so seriously that he was trying to do the job you know and not thinking about presenting how you do the job for sure and I think also you know his image for the first many years of New Labour, was the right image, wasn't it? It was as a, as part of a public-facing double act. He's the straight guy, the serious guy who's in charge of the, yeah, the money. the bass player or whatever. And yeah. you want to be seen as serious. Um, mm. And then, but then how do you pivot when you become Prime Minister? And arguably, you didn't really. And um, um, so it is really... But the question about voices, yeah, really good one. I don't know, I'm struggling to think of prominent politicians who've got voices you would you would want them to have. Steve Coogan used to do a very good Kinnock um, impression. But I don't know why it always made me laugh. Because he would sort of, I can't do it, but he would sort of slow down and then suddenly go high. But I thought he, for me, Kinnock was sort of, at least in my life, he was the last sort of orator. You know, mm. he could really take a speech and take you through the hills and the valleys and to the mountaintops, you know. You've, like I really got emotional when I listened to his speeches, and I was emotional with Blair and Brown, but for different different reasons. I think because mm. I I just loved their ideas or what they were about, but but for oratory, um, Kinnock was out of this world. I think although you wouldn't say he had the best voices. It's a different thing, isn't it? Mm. I remember hearing Arthur Scargill talk in nineteen eighty six. Seven eighty-seven. Is that your game then? Were you in the Scargill? I was one of the, the Scargill <laughs> lad. Yeah, um, and um, being amazed at how softly spoken he was and normal sounding he was, because what you'd see on TV was this screaming, ranting madman. And um, he spoke for an hour. It was incredibly compelling and convincing, and you know, step by step, logical, and you know, it was a really interesting experience to see the real man versus what you'd seen on. TV and but what you didn't realize was that inch by inch he was going louder and and bolder you know until the end and he, but he built to get there but by the end he was doing that thing that you'd seen on the telly which is shouting and screaming and demanding but because you'd gone there with him you wanted to shout and scream you, you I would have voted for him if I'd been a minor on the spot you know he was just like completely amazing but you you couldn't um, you just never you would never know from the reporting and it's obviously understandable you, if you if you're going to give thirty seconds of Scargill you'd give the 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 money shot would be you know the the peak at the end but actually he'd take you on a journey that was really reasonable and measured and and not quite as softly spoken as you and I now but pretty much it's really interesting isn't it that our whole because it's true of all of them our whole impression of them is not from especially now is not from seeing them live and not seeing complete speeches but from from just a I know we all know this but just from a a few seconds 
on the telly and, and actually different voices work and different ways of speaking work better or worse for that. I mean, Tony Blair obviously was able to formulate a thought or a sentence, you know, in a very precise space of time. That was like an amazing talent that he had. Mm. And he's still got. And he's still got, yeah. Mm. Whereas Kinnock probably couldn't do that. But he, you'd ha- he'd have you bawling at the end of a speech and he'd have taken you on that journey that you described. Mm. But but your relationship to him would be different because you've not seen those speeches. Only mm. the people who'd seen them would, um, or listened to the whole speech would, would get that. It's really interesting. Well, I think, you're, you know, obviously there's a different point. One point is about the tone of voice and delivery and the other one is about speaking live, really, speaking in front of a crowd, isn't it? And having mm. the time to go take the crowd on a journey with you. And I remember um, after Kinnock lost, there was a documentary about him which had more time to really listen to him than the, than the reporting that you'd seen on TV. And again, it's the same thing. You suddenly thought, wow, there's a statesman. Then mm. actually, I'd voted for him, but I didn't know he had that, you know, sort of actually sound intellect and, um, you know, the sort of quality of the politician was not evident from the reporting that you'd seen. But I think, if again, if I'd heard him speak, I might have been mighty impressed. And this documentary was like, it really made you mourn for the government that we might have had if he'd won. And it made you so angry that, you know, the, how ridiculous the steps were, of, you know, that the stumbles were literally the stumbles on Brighton Beach, you know, that... Mm. Um, he had some sort of verbal stumbles as well, didn't he? Maybe when he got a bit too excited or what have you. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's so interesting. I mean, so when I used to, you know, well, when we would do ads together, I would often play them with the sound off because mm. you just thought people are kind of only, only half watching and the visuals are so important. But... You know, then there's that that sort of Danny Boyle thing. He said, if I had 10 quid to spend on a film, I'd spend £9 on the sound, you know. Um, Did he say that? Yeah, which I can sort of understand that. You know, when he did um, Shallow Grave. Oh, yeah, yeah. um, And it had, like, an amazing um, soundscape and soundtrack. And actually, politicians never, ever think about that. And we've been involved in politics, and we don't think about it that long. And obviously, you've thought about it now, but... We don't really think about it that much. I suppose Thatcher must have clearly thought about it because he changed us totally. Mm. It's really interesting. There's loads that you can say about it. You know, I remember when the same party film that we made with Keir also had Rachel Reeves. Yeah. And the way we did it was you went off and filmed Scott going with Keir and I sat with Rachel because we knew we wouldn't need her for a little while and we went through, Rachel and I went through her script, sort of tidying yeah. it up a bit. And um, I said... Let's do a run-through, but the way you should do it is not sound like a politician. Mm. Sound like you're trying to talk to me, to tell me what your policies are and why this is a problem and why it was cost of living, actually, even though it was ages ago, but they saw cost of living coming and were good on it. So were we, we helped them. But um, um, So she went through the script as if she was talking to you and me now, very direct tone, very normal, not you know, not lofty and political, but people can't pay their bills and we're going to have to do something about it and we've got one policy which is windfall tax on energy companies and we can use that to offset and blah 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 sounded great she was really pleased I was really pleased and then we came out to join you at the right time for the for the end of Keir doing his bit and Keir was doing in Walthamstone Market what the politicians of all colours normally do which is their sort of, you know, you're out in the open, there's people all around mm. and you're sort of talking a bit in a bit more of a grandiose way and you're giving a speech. And mm. his 
delivery was politician speech delivery, but, you know, a more sort of projecting tone, less intimate. And so I turned to Rachel and I said, you can't, you can't do it. You can't do what we've just done because it won't cut against what Keir's doing. You have, yeah. you have to basically go for the same level of projection that he's doing. And so that's the way it ended up. But I do think that if you think about the politicians who can connect with people, the first one that comes to mind is Boris Johnson, because he had a way of sounding like he was talking, uh, trying to use him in the past tense, so I don't want to ever see him again. Um, but he had a way of talking to people like he was talking to down the pub. Yeah. And, but, you know, like him or loathe him, <coughs> there's something that made him sound like a human being and that, that could be a sort of, could connect with a working class guy. Um, and I would say a substantial chunk of that is an ability and a confidence, actually, to talk in a certain way that demands, um, you know, of the people recording you, that they come a bit closer and they turn up the levels a bit and, you know, draws you in. And I would put money on that being a significant part of his... It's obviously not all of it, but it's a part of his success. It's got to be right, hasn't it? And he, he always felt like he was speaking off the cuff, even if it was pretty highly planned and mm. Tony Blair could do that as well but in a sort of slightly more formal um, way I mean you'd always listen you would listen to Boris wouldn't you even if you hate what he said which I did you mm. you would definitely your ear would be caught by by him um, and yeah that, that thing with Rachel Reeves was interesting I mean I, th- I think also what happened there it's interesting how the like the practice of things changes how you know changes things because we were going to work with a bit with Keir and then a bit with Rachel and get their words done and then we're going to go off and do the wandering about because Keir was in a hurry or he had a timetable which Mm. we of course would defer to we did Keir and then he went off and did a wandering about which Rachel did a bit of wandering about and then when we came back with a short time left to do Rachel's bit we probably hadn't you know structured it or given the time and it was a different time of day and and um it, it felt like what it was, which was kind of like we'd done the big bit and now we're doing the other bit. Um, and that was probably a mistake, actually. I think the way in which you... I think the way in which you treat people is the way they come out, right? In life, sort of thing, a bit. Um, and she was fine on it. She's really brilliant, Rachel Reeves. She's mm. amazing. Mm. But I sort of... I think it'd been nice to have had that up the top of the morning, really, and to really focus um, all of the filming effort and the, and the time. I mean, you had some time with her, which was brilliant. But maybe, you know, yeah, the order in which you deal with people affects how they perform as well. Well, I mean, you go back and there's always a million things you would do differently and you do the best in the circumstances and the time that you've got, which is always, you know, highly constrained. Always not enough. Um, But I just think it's interesting to think, because, you know, you've opened up a Pandora's box with the voice thing, Mm. which is, it's not just who's got a, a winning voice, but also... Are they even given the opportunity or thinking about how to, to use the, the voice that they have got? Because I, I would say that it might be worth saying to Rachel, when you went for that direct tone before, actually it was pretty compelling. Is there a way we can experiment a little bit <coughs> yeah, and see, see whether we can get a little bit more cut through with a more informal tone? And arguably the same for Kia too. Is it harder for women? Because I'm also thinking about great women leaders, but... They're not necessarily known as orators, let's say, or, you know, or for the big speeches. I mean, Thatcher, yes, for the big sound bites and the big moments. But in general, do we, 
is it do we apply a different standard to women when we're thinking about this i don't know i think there are impressive politicians who we like what they say people like um, caroline lucas yeah you'll struggle yeah i mean nobody votes green but you'll struggle to find anyone who a reasonable person who disagrees with them she talks a whole heap of sense Mm. um and you know there are strong voices like yvette cooper is she an orator i don't know but you'd be frightened if you had to go up against her Mm. if i was called into a select committee and being grilled by her i'd be i wouldn't be sleeping for a few nights before but i don't know if that's the same thing as having sort of you know what this is really about this conversation is who is the inspirational leader in our politics Mm. at the moment because if you've got the political ideas and you've got a way to get yourself heard and it isn't just about voice it's about the whole package then you've got a chance of leading leading us into a place where we're not just so that you're not a politician who's responsive to populism what we've got at the moment is um, some well well-intentioned opposition but who who can't lead us out of populism they're going along with it instead um, and playing soft populism versus the sort of hard populism of the of the Tories and hoping that they can keep mm. their heads down long enough to be elected. They aren't saying, look guys, there's an alternative vision here, even on the, the issues of the week, like migration. They're saying, yeah, that's not really working. It's never, you, your, your migration models that don't work. They're not saying they're immoral. And actually we need to rethink the way we are with people who are displaced. You know, that's a strategic decision that has been made. And in some ways I think you know, you can see that there's a strong case for that. But if you had a politician of the, the charisma and sort of direct relationship with the people that somebody like Boris had, maybe you would be in a better place to, to actually you know, put forward a different worldview in the hope that people will get behind you because you've got some sort of draw. But we don't have that, and that's the truth. We don't have it at the moment, and I think you have to acknowledge that. And if, you've, if you haven't got it, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, that's... That's a really good question because, you know, there's this kind of cacophony of demands for policies and visions from Keir, but actually if he he throws a load of those out, they're going to either be shot down or or stolen by the opposition, by the Tories or others, if, if they're any good. So that's a really hard game. But unless you can articulate a kind of feeling or a, like you say, a worldview or a kind of sense that things will be different, even if you can't really say how they'll be different, but you just feel that they will be different, that's really powerful, isn't it? And as, if you haven't got that, it's, got, it's going to be tough at some point, sooner or later, I would have thought. For sure, because you know, this strategy that they've got, that the, so we're talking about the opposition now, what, the strategy that they've got is possibly the right one and could possibly get them elected, and the polls at the moment certainly would indicate um, an amazing turnaround in favour of Labour, although there's lots of caveats to that, and there was um, I noticed that there was a, there's been a Tory away day recently, and their director of strategy spent the whole day talking to them about how the Labour lead is in fact quite soft, mm. and that there is a path to victory for them. So you know, it, the jury's certainly out; things can change. And, but I think um, let's say that this strategy works and Labour come to power with a comfortable majority, there's still a job to do of selling a different vision of the world and selling progressive policies to, to people that haven't heard them for quite a long time, really. So those, the politics won't go away, in my view. 
you'll still have to convince people that you're doing the right thing to take them along with you. So there's a job to be done, that's for sure. I mean, obviously, it helps if you're in government because you've got the apparatus of the state and you can make law and you can do things. But you've still got to win, at some level, convince people you're doing the right thing. Um, and how they're going to do that remains to be seen. I mean, Keir, the good thing about him is he does... You do sort of think, if he was doing the job of Prime Minister, I'd, I'd feel OK about that, you know. He is your bank manager from Guildford, you know, and that and that's all right, you know. That's, well, it's better than all right, it's great. And, and he's taken the party from, you know, being a basket case to being miles ahead. I mean, it's almost unknown for someone... Yeah. To do that, because Tony's when Tony Blair came to power, Labour was already mm-hmm. had a substantial lead because of John Smith. So, mm. uh, and because of the work that Kinnock had done, so he's done a, a heck of a job in that sense. But then, on the other hand, I, I could see how the Tories could really do a number on him closer to the time. You know, his ten-point plan before he got elected became this new five-point plan, which is much vaguer. Um, and, you know, you could do a sort of Kerry-style flip-flopping thing with some of the mm. things mm. he's done on Brexit and, mm. you know, nationalisation and God knows what else. So mm. he's open to the charge of the, the flip-flopping. He's open to the culture war stuff, or slightly open to that, although he's he's closing up, I think, on, on that a bit. And does he feel like the strong guy that we might need in tough times? I mean, up against Rishi probably does, but... Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, his the leadership get the gap on leadership. Who's the best leader? Is much much smaller than the gap between the two parties. You know, it feels like that that could be closable. But then, if you were Rishi, what would you what would you do? If, if I was Rishi, you know, the, I mean, the the I mean, weakness. Thank God you're not. But <laughs> <laughs> the weakness of Rishi before was that in the, when there was a a race for Tory leadership, was that he was seen as the guy who brought Boris down which is probably kind of the case, right? Mm. But you see, now he's got the leadership. If I were him, I would enjoy that. I would put Boris in his place and take some comfort and strength, you know, and argue that um, you might think I'm a nice, cuddly... You might have thought I was a nice, cuddly guy, you know, or at worst, someone capable of stabbing a good leader in the back. Actually, I'm better than him. Mm. You know, I went and did a great deal with the EU on um, the protocol... I'm going to go and sort out with the EU some sort of deal over migrants and, you know, we're going to have a growing up sensible conversation with them. And Johnsonism is dead. And I, yeah, I killed him. His hard, hard approach on Brexit wasn't the right one. We need to go forward. I'm the guy who understands the economy and he was ideological, but we know we need to do this. And I'm still a Brexiteer, but, you know, we have to be practical about it. And if that meant killing, you know, we're never going to say those words, but if you give the impression, yeah, if that meant killing off, Boris, yeah, had to be done. That's a you know that's a strong offer. You know, makes him look like a leader, yeah. and he couldn't deploy that when there was a race. But now, by a weird twist of events, he's, he's coming through the back door. I, I would say he's got to find some way to make himself look like he deserves that role um, and to appear tough. And I, you know, a big bit of me wouldn't mind that either because I, I'm not a fan of Rishi, but I definitely am not a fan of Johnson coming. Yeah, I mean that man's a curse on our politics. Mm. I don't know if you saw today um, Sunak met with uh, Macron and Macron looked well happy and I think it's because Sunak's the first world leader he's met who's smaller than him. (laughs) 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 I'm pretty sure looking at it, you know, Macron's like, hey, I'm the big guy. (laughs) 
But you can literally imagine, can't you, that there being a conversation about, you know, what kind of shoes should we put on Rishi? Should we put giving the little ones with a little bit of heel, or what would it do if? And probably the same in Macron's office as well. You know, do we use the heels or do we? We won't name the the politician because it would be it'd be wrong to. But there's a politician that we both have come across whose assistant bought him these great big platform trainers. You know, he looks sort of closer to sort of shawaddy waddy than <laughs> you know than, than being a statesman. Yeah. Um, and he thought they were great. And he's going around in these you know built up sort of trainers, and no one sort of mentioned it really but I did think it was sort of comic it was comical you know mm. but no Rishi seems comfortable with his height because yeah he was well he was towered over by um, <laughs> five foot four Macron <laughs> that's funny did you see him with his boots on when Zelensky was in town they went they marched off into a helicopter together to go and do man's business and Zelensky's obviously is in his in his uniform and they put Rishi in sort of army kit as well and the thing that I loved about it was the boots. He had some really good boots on, and he and they'd done them in a sort of not quite tied way. The boots were really loosely laced. What, like sort of South London style? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked, he looked fantastic in it. He looked great in those boots. But I mean, what? How mad it is! And I know you and I are the sort of people who who actually talk about this stuff and might say let's put some different clothes on you and let's have your sleeves rolled up or down or you know we care about that stuff but it is mental isn't mad it is mad isn't it yeah well Theresa May's shoes I mean they sort of help make her career didn't mm. they in a way you know the clothes make of the person so I mean she you thought she had a bit of sass about her didn't you because of the shoes in a way and then yeah. when she got in she a little bit of leopard skin and yeah. <laughs> well they tried desperately to give her some personality mm. didn't really didn't really yeah. have, did she? No. Yeah. But I mean, people say we want boring now, and actually, you could argue that we've got two of the least exciting personalities. Mm. I wouldn't say characters because I think they've both got characters. Mm. But you know, they're two of the weaker personalities. But then, I don't know. In other places around the world, the personalities do seem to be stepping off the stage, and the you know the kind of bank managers are, are, are taking the reins a little bit, aren't mm. they? You know, Jacinda's gone in um, New Zealand and um, Morrison in Australia and mm. Morris has gone and obviously mm. Trump. I mean, no one would call Biden a kind of, you know, star performer, would you, really? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No. no. <laughs> I mean, there's Georgia Maloney in, in, in Italy. Yeah, tr- that's, yeah, hun- um, yeah, massively true. Which is a bit scary. But no, it is. it does feel like it could be the end of this particular wave of of, you know, out-and-out populism. Is that just a reaction? You know, in the same way, like, I don't know, maybe the football clubs had Harry Redknapp in and then they just, and they thought we've had enough of all that for a bit, we'll get someone a bit quieter and a bit, you know... Is it that, or is it a change of what we want from politicians? Or, yeah, what's going on? Why are they all so boring? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they haven't left the stage, have they? I mean, you know, Trump's still around. Yeah, Boris is still still around. I think it's too early to say mm. what's really going on there. I don't think people do want boring. I, no. I think, I think there's um, there's an extent to which, if you are a lively character, you've got personality and skills, do you think, do you know what? I'll go and do something else for a bit. Come mm. to see how the land lies in four or five years' time because you can go off and do something really interesting and well-paid and make a difference if, you're, if your motive is to make a difference in the world. And I'm thinking particularly of someone like David Miliband, for different reasons, but it wasn't 
the right time for him in the UK. Mm. Um, do you stick around? Or do you think, no, actually, I, I can make a difference. I'll go and run the International well, Rescue some, Committee. Yeah, which he's done an yeah. amazing job at. Yeah, and all his sort of statesmanship and experience in the Foreign Office and his brilliance at getting people to heads together to actually do something about the tens of millions of people who are on the move in the world. And he's done that. So what I'm saying is if you if you think the space is crowded and you've got a bit of pizzazz about you, you might well think, you know what, I'll go and do I'll go and do something else. And that leaves people who maybe are less less able to flip between different worlds. Mm. Sticking well, around. They're, the, they're sort of the weird kids and the dull kids, aren't they, really left after that? <laughs> it, it's the truth. It is the it? truth. I love uh, I, I like some of our politicians, I don't want <laughs> to, to, I'm just gonna say to all my friends not you, but yeah, there are a lot of nerdy guys. Like and and guys. alongside that, I was seeing the other day, I don't know if these figures are exactly right, if I remember it correctly, but I think when Tony Blair was elected, there were 160 MPs who had done other things in their lives, you know, mm. not just worked in politics. And when they checked again more recently, it was like 20. So the kind of, the range of characters and experiences and ideas and just they call it lived experience in mm. in mm. you know in other walks of life which is really really i think even though it's an overused phrase it is really important you've actually done something you've mm. lived something of the world that you're trying to change um well, I, and I the ones who've done something yeah. have worked in the city you know they've yeah. set up a hedge fund <laughs> great so they know about the world yeah it's a kind of screwed up view of the world isn't yeah. it really um, I mean, whatever you say about John Prescott, he had worked on a chip as a waiter, man, and he, you know, he'd been there and he'd done the hard yards in life. And I think that is that is missing, you know. Like, would would David Miliband come back and would we be better for it? Well, I mean, his experience would definitely help, you know, the the party and the country. But you know, is that even a thing now, or is it just that we're just sticking with these kind of career politicians? You know, strictly speaking, career. I don't know. I don't know. But you can see how, once you've done that, though, how do you come back? Mm. You know, and it wouldn't be right or fair for, um, for people to go off and have some fun doing something else and come back in while people who've been the shadow foreign minister or, or indeed the leader of the opposition, and then you come back and say, hi, I'm back. You know, that ain't going to work, is it? So once you're out, kind of out, you're kind of out. So maybe mm. my thesis is, is wrong. But it just feels to me like um, if you're going to run on sort of colourful character if there are colorful characters around you've got a, quite an easy to, you know am i going to win up against those guys if not then i'll go off and do something else maybe i think what you've said is also true which is people are obviously to a certain well the people that we've got just measurably are people who've decided to go into politics from the age of 18 you know they go to oxford mm. and they become president of parties association and then they work for an mp and then they yeah. mm. And I suppose the profession of politics, it's its become, you know, you've got to be a media performer in a certain way, you've got to not make full steps in a certain way. There's, It's a much more kind of funnelled thing, isn't it? Like a stricter regime in a way. Mm. Um, you know, the sort of people, the sort of skinners and other people would find it very hard to, to, to come through now, I'm sure. And you've got people like Jess Phillips who's outspoken and stuff. Um, but... I don't know, it feels like it's just a more limited process, really, and a more limited gene pool of, of politicians to that. Mm. Maybe we've got the politicians that the system, you know, is, is yeah. designed to give us. Yeah, 
or even that we deserve I hate to say that yeah, yeah. I didn't want to say that yeah. but it's probably it's true yeah. yeah well if that's the case we've done something wrong haven't we? if, if that's what <laughs> this is all we deserve come back for part two in which we find the tape of Keir Starmer and invite you to guess which clip is the real Keir Starmer and which is the Keir Starmer you want to hear and we ask does a politician's voice determine what kind of politician they can actually be You've been listening to Electioneering with Mark Lucas and me, Dominic Mingella. Electioneering is an Island Pictures production and our audio ident is composed by Andy Price. <laughs>